This is Christian Knutson and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in chilly downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A new law that was enacted today aims to promote awareness of sudden cardiac arrest at scholastic athletic events. According to a press release, 2021 Wisconsin Act 210 requires the Department of Public Instruction to work with the Wisconsin Interscholastic Athletic Association and two pediatric cardiologists to develop educational materials about the risks of sudden cardiac, car, cardiac arrests. Governor Tony Evers signed the bill today at Waukesha North High School. In 2019, Waukesha North student Kyle Lermer passed away after going into cardiac arrest while playing basketball. According to the Mayo Clinic, sudden cardiac arrest in student-athletes is often due to a heart abnormality. Mike Lermer, Kai's father, hopes the bill will provide education that motivates students and their parents to get an EKG test, which could detect abnormalities prior to playing sports. An award-winning architecture firm will be joining the design team of the new Wisconsin History Center on the Capitol Square in downtown Madison. The Smith Group, which helped design multiple high-profile museums around the nation, will work with the Milwaukee-based Continuum Architects and Planners on the $120 million project. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the State Historical Society houses one of the nation's largest collections of historic assets. The project will expand the flagship museum to four levels and 120,000 square feet, with construction planning to start in early 2024. Madison will be expanding its nonviolent 911 mental health crisis team to offer services citywide. According to a press release, the Community Alternative Response for Emergency Services, or CARES, will be expanding after a successful six-month pilot program. The CARES team consists of paramedics and crisis workers who provide a patient-centered approach to de-escalating mental health crises. The initiative was launched in September of 2021 to replace police responses to nonviolent mental health crisis calls but only focused on the downtown area. The CARES team has responded to 246 calls as of March 11th. With this record, the city hired a program manager and plans to add an additional team later this year. A resident of the Madison Homeless Shelter Encampment allegedly set his own shelter on fire this afternoon. Police are investigating the possible arson after firefighters responded to a burning tiny shelter this afternoon. Firefighters spotted the smoke from the blaze from their station across the street, but the structure burned to the ground before their arrival. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that no one was injured and no other tiny shelters were damaged from this fire. The city opened the 30-shelter encampment last November to help transition people to long-term housing after closing an encampment at Rindall Park on the city's east side. After a year of efforts, Collectivo is now officially the nation's largest unionized cafe chain. Workers at the Wisconsin-based coffee shop chain voted in March of 2021 to join the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. What was originally a tie vote ended up leaning towards pro-union after the company ownership challenged 16 ballots and lost multiple appeals before the National Labor Relations Board. Collectivo, meaning collective in Spanish, has roughly 330 to 440 employees in Madison, Milwaukee, and Chicago. According to the Capital Times, other Wisconsin coffee shops may be following suit, with workers at two Starbucks locations in the state announcing plans to unionize in February. And now, on to today's top stories. Election Day this spring is on April 5th. That's one week from today. One Dane County board position that's being contested is the District 37 seat. Heron Splinter introduces the candidates. 
Dane County Board of Supervisors, District 37, lies in the southeast corner of the county. It includes the town of Cambridge, Deerfield, and the village of Brooklyn. The race is between incumbent Kate McGinnity and challenger Stephen Schultz. McGinnity has served one two-year term as supervisor so far. In her term, she has focused on expanding rural broadband access. Schultz is more difficult to learn about. He has no internet presence and has not given any interviews to news outlets. The Cambridge News and Deerfield Independent reports that Schultz served as Medina Town Chairman for about 10 years, starting in 2003. Before that, he was a town supervisor. Because of district boundary changes, this would be the first year that Schultz would live in District 37. He did not appear at a recent candidate forum held by the same newspaper. In the past week, Schultz did not respond to multiple requests for comment from WORT. In February, the State Journal reported that Schultz had donated small amounts to Republican candidates in years past. Last June, he donated $250 to State Representative Barbara Dietrich, a Republican from Oconomowoc. Supervisor McGinnity is more public with her views. In the same forum with Cambridge News and Deerfield Independent, she emphasized the need for more rural broadband access in economic development in recovering from COVID. McGinnity told WORT on Monday about her number one issues. What is the biggest issue that you see facing broadband. your district? Broadband? Accessible, affordable, reliable broadband. Absolutely. It affects everything, right? It affects telehealth, education. It affects economic development. And, you know, as we get our towns thriving again in Dane County, our downtown thriving, we're going to need it. And, and we're finding, you know, that our data is showing exactly what we were learning at the doors. And it is that the data that our Dane County rural people are experiencing is different than what's being reported from the PSC and the FCC. McGinnity also spoke about her desire to expand and enhance Dane County's parks and natural spaces. That's another big priority of people that I represent is our natural spaces. And these last two years, we have seen record numbers in use of our Dane County parks and our other Dane County spaces, you know, kind of natural spaces. And so I think continuing to protect and expand those spaces is also very important to the people I represent. The spring election is next Tuesday. If you're voting via absentee ballot, return it soon so that it is received in time to be counted by Election Day. Some municipalities have early voting. Check with your local clerk's office about early voting hours and locations. The District 37 race is one of 10 contested races for supervisor positions. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Heron Splinter. Today marked yet another chilly and windy day here in Madison, and while tomorrow may be warming up, there's also a chance for some rain. For a detailed weather forecast, we go now to WORT weather producer, Caitlin Davis. Yet another treacherous day in Wisconsin. The winds continue with a mix of overcast weather. Temperatures here in Madison are currently sitting at 37 degrees. The wind stayed consistent throughout the day, which will continue at a steady 16 miles per hour into the evening hours. You may have felt the wind gusts today on your commute as they reached up to 20 miles per hour. Winds are coming from east-southeast, a change in what we've been seeing with the winds coming from the north. The mix of wind and cloud coverage made the temperature outside feel about just 9 degrees cooler than the actual temperature. 
Today's high only reached about 39 degrees, and tonight we will be dropping down to just 37 degrees, which will stay consistent to just about 3 a.m. before the temperatures begin to rise again. Today, the humidity stayed around 33%, which is a result of the 19-degree difference between the temperature and the dew point. The further those two numbers are away from each other, the less likely we are to see humidity and precipitation. With temperatures staying low, humidity levels also decrease. The cause of this is being that cold air cannot hold as much moisture as warmer air. The barometric pressure is sitting at just 30.18, which is considered normal, meaning you probably aren't feeling the headaches that you felt last week. Barometric pressure does not have to change drastically to cause headaches, so when it fluctuates, people tend to complain of them more. A warm front will be coming in overnight, which will warm up tomorrow's temperatures with the possibility of reaching the low 60s. Unfortunately, precipitations will likely begin tonight and continue all throughout Wednesday. Thunderstorms are possible throughout the day, and high winds continuing into tomorrow, which could reach about 15 miles per hour again, but is likely to stay within 10 miles per hour range. I'm expecting an accumulation of a quarter to a half inch of rain tomorrow. As another cold front will likely move in tomorrow night, there will likely be a mix of rain and snow throughout the overnight hours, Wednesday into Thursday. If you are ready for the snow to go away, don't be so ready yet. There's a chance of new snow accumulation Wednesday night, but don't be too worried. If snow does accumulate, it will be less than a half inch. With WORT News, I'm Caitlin Davis. If you have an eviction claim filed against you, anyone can look up that history on a public website, even if the situation was resolved before you were evicted. A legal aid group says that public information can stick with you for up to two decades and pose issues for renters trying to find their next place to live. WORT reporter Katherine Garvins takes it from here. Legal Action of Wisconsin provides free legal services to low-income individuals and families. Part of those legal services are eviction-related cases. Corey Lundeen is an attorney from the firm's Madison office. He says that an eviction can stay on a renter's record for up to two decades, and that can really impact rental options in the future. Lundeen also says that those records can stay with renters, even if they weren't actually evicted. In Wisconsin, more than 90% of eviction cases don't end with a renter being evicted. The court record haunts the tenant for decades. harder for them to find safe and affordable housing. The goal is to fix systemic issues in the renting market. Legal action says having an eviction record can cause families to be forced to live in higher cost and lower quality housing, exacerbating poverty, systemic racism, and housing segregation. Legal Action of Wisconsin is seeking to change that. They're asking the state's highest court to shorten the period of time eviction records are retained. Instead of up to 20 years, they're asking to retain those records up to one year in cases where there was no money judgment entered against either party. Under the current rule, eviction records are retained for up to 20 years, whether a money judgment is granted or not. But, Lindine says, the change would benefit landlords, too. Because landlords may rely on this data that is skewed and incorporates all of these racial disparities, if they're using that as a criterion for deciding who to rent to, they're going to end up with skewed business decisions. Those skewed business decisions are going to continue to perpetuate those disparities. In February of this year, the American Bar Association published 10 guidelines to aid tenants and landlords dealing with the eviction crisis. 
Lundin says legal actions work precedes these recommendations, but is certainly reinforced by them. So the American Bar Association recently put out recommendations of best practice for things for states to follow. And one of their recommendations was the sealing of eviction records so that it wouldn't impact tenants. This is a little bit different than those recommendations, but there is that push for states to not have this data as publicly accessible because of the extreme harm. Typically, changes in policy are handled by lawmakers at the state capitol, but because this petition impacts previous court rulings, they're going straight to the Supreme Court. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Katherine Garvins. The time right now is 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news right here on WORT. When people think about high school sports, they usually think of football, basketball, and soccer. But one high school in western Wisconsin is offering something a little different. WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with someone from Melrose Mindoro High School about why it is offering auto racing as the school's latest extracurricular option. When you think of auto races, you probably think of something like the Daytona 500, where adults who've spent their whole lives driving cars race in a marathon around a track. But those racers have to start somewhere, and one school in Wisconsin is trying to help young drivers get their start. I'm on the line now with Heather Young, the athletic director from Melrose Mindoro High School in western Wisconsin, which recently became the first high school in the state to offer auto racing as a letterable sport. Heather, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yes, thank you for having me. So I have to start off by asking, why did you decide to offer auto racing as a official letterable sport in the school? I know that the kids were already racing, but what does having them race through the school do for them and for the school? Sure. So with, with auto racing, it's, it's definitely a sport that you know not a, a lot of people really know is out there for students. Um, and with this high school racing association, we had two uh, gentlemen competing in this the past couple years, and they've done an outstanding job. And for the school to recognize that and get behind them and support that and their sport was something that I, as the new athletic director here, really wanted for those for those kids. And since getting that to be a letterable sport, we've had more interest. More students are wanting to know about what the High School Racing Association is and how they can participate. 
So uh, we're very excited for these kiddos, and we are happy that we can support their uh, racing and, you know, their passion. And I have to ask, why racing? What does racing teach kids that say something like football doesn't? Sure. So, so racing teaches them determination, perseverance, those similar things that, that football or, you know, the ball and bat and ball sports teach. Um, but this might be for some students who are not interested in, in those sports. They, they like auto mechanics. They're more into science. You know, it takes a lot of math and science to make these cars go around the track. And the knowledge for that becoming, you know, part of a race team, even though it is considered still an individual sport, um, these these students are still representing our school. So, you know, it's with with racing, it's also teaching teaching them budgeting skills. All of these things that they're doing cost money. This comes out of their pocket, not our pocket. So um, it's definitely teaching them that budgeting aspect. Also communication skills. These drivers are being interviewed, so it's teaching them, you know, that public communication, written communication, asking for sponsorships, those types of things that football, baseball, you know, soccer, those sports don't teach. And so this is mostly talking through the racers. Is there also, say, a mechanic side of it? Obviously, you need to have a pit team uh, with it. Or would they be students as well? Is that something that you would offer? So at this time, um, it's very new. We haven't. Um, we are only offering it to the drivers of these teams. Um, it's mainly their families, um, parents, uncles that are, are getting them into this sport. Um, a lot of, you know, the adults in their lives um, doing that. So right now, um, as far as if, they're, if they have students on a pit crew, um, I know that some tracks are letting them get in for a discounted price as part of the HSRA membership um, to learn about um, the auto mechanics of racing, uh, but right now it's only offered for the drivers of, of the, the vehicle. And now you are the first school in the state to offer racing through the school, so I, would they be racing in their normal races? Is there a league of high school-specific racers? Sure. So there is the High School Racing Association division. It's offered at four racetracks throughout the state of Wisconsin. Uh, currently, I know um, Jonathan Eckelberg is the director of the High School Racing Association. He's looking at getting some more tracks on board, which is super exciting uh, for the division. But currently, these drivers can race at the Madison International Speedway. They can race at the Toma Sparta Speedway, Lacrosse Interstate Fairground Speedway, and also now um, in Wisconsin Dells, the Dells Speedway. So um, some of these drivers will pick their track and race in six races, um, but they can also travel. Um, our our students, I know for one, um, Mitchell Berg, he traveled to Madison and he raced at Toma and, and Lacrosse. Um, a lot of them stick closer to home um, with the Toma Lacrosse area, but he did really enjoy the Madison Speedway. So, um, you know, they they have the option to travel, which is really exciting see other kids in the division um, and, and get some different competition. 
Now, what are some of the more logistical challenges that come from offering auto racing through the school? I know a lot of people at home right now are thinking that it's a sort of a dangerous sport, not that all sports aren't a little dangerous, but is there any sort of insurance that the school needs in order to host these teams? No, absolutely not. Um, The school's not liable um, for anything that may happen out on on the track. Um, Each track has their own insurance policy uh, that the students will um, sign up to be a member of the HSRA, and then every race they sign in on a waiver for that track. Um, So no responsibility falls on the school. Really, all that we're doing here at the school is recognizing them, it's a sport of auto racing, allowing them to letter to get a pin every year. Um, after their first year, they'll get the letter, and then every year after that, they'll get a pin. Uh, it does not count towards their seven letters um, that they can get with the WIAA. This is not a WIAA-approved sport, but just like rodeo and trap shooting and those other sports that we um, are allowing them to letter this racing division because it's high school specific um, is why we chose to um, get them that letterable eligibility. And Heather, do you have just any final thoughts on any of this and what do the kids think of all this? Sure. So um, the the kids are very grateful for it. Um, they're hoping that by us allowing this and getting more publicity for the High School Racing Association. It'll spark interest in other students, other schools across the state of Wisconsin. Um, This is definitely going to help build the auto industry um, because allowing these kids to to do this other sport um, and and us recognizing that it is important um, is definitely increasing interest in our you know, small engines department, our auto um, auto classes. So it's, we're definitely seeing um, more talk and more excitement uh, for, those, um, for those fields. I've been talking with Heather Young, the athletic director at Melrose Mindoro High School in western Wisconsin, about the school becoming the first in the state to offer auto racing as a letterable sport. Heather, thank you so much again for coming on and talking with me today. Yes, thank you for having me. You are listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call outlines its spring semester's action project and looks at what's in store for the publication. Wildlife Weekly does give a hoot about baby owls. And Radio Astronomy looks at how the James Webb Space Telescope can be used to look back in time. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash.
The time now is 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Christian Knutson. Thanks so much for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. On this week's Cardinal Call, host, host producer Hope Carnope spoke with Editor-in-Chief Addison Lathers about the semester's action plan and what else is on the horizon. Students so rarely get to look around and see all of us, our peers, our friends, our neighbors, casual acquaintances, until we're practically at Camp Randall about to receive our diploma. So our March edition will be titled The Identity Issue. We're planning on taking a step back to try to represent the student body openly and honestly and interact with our surrounding city by highlighting the voices we might forget about. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by our editor-in-chief, Addison Lathers, to introduce this semester's action project and share some updates about the Cardinal. Thank you, as always, for joining us, Addison. Thank you for having me, Hope. I will take any chance I can get to just, like, talk to you for more than two minutes. (laughs) If someone hasn't heard of our action projects before, can you explain what they are and why we do them? Absolutely. So our action projects are basically special issues of the newspaper that are sponsored by the Cap Times Edu Foundation. And they tend to just dive a little bit deeper into an issue than we can in, you know, a normal story or a normal print edition. And we usually pick topics. Well, in the past, we've taken, you know, women's uh, rights issues. We've done a disabilities issue. We've done a green issue where we looked at, you know, basically recycling on campus and, you know, how we can really turn our lives around and make a greener planet. And we've also done recently a class, uh, Politics and Protest. Um, And last semester, we looked at students' impact on the surrounding community as far as housing and, you know, just the basic choices we make in our daily lives. So there are special issues. And honestly, they're some of the best things that we put out all year long. So they're definitely worth a look. You mentioned last semester, our action project, we worked with Pointer, which is a nonprofit journalism institute, to look at the effects of student living on the Madison community. What were some of the highlights of that project for you, and do you think that it still has some current relevance right now? Oh, yeah, definitely a lot of uh, relevance, especially as a lot of projects on State Street begin to move forward. These, you know, apartment buildings that are springing up left and right. Our action project is always going to be worth a revisit whenever those conversations come up. Because, you know, we got to talk to historians, we got to talk to students, we got to talk to residents that are like actually impacted by how students choose to live on and off campus and how university choices affect the city. So I would say that that issue has been one of my favorites that we've ever done because we really got to look at luxury living, um, you know, the sophomore slums, off campus housing, you know, as much as like five to 10 miles away from campus, how those impact residents. So. Definitely one of my favorites. Let's talk a little bit about our action project this semester. What is the theme we decided to explore and why are we focusing on it? So we chose to do an issue uh, that we're loosely titling the identity issue. And I'd say that the the background for that, so if you wanna get really deep into it, 
In 2000, a Daily Cardinal reporter discovered that UW had photoshopped the face of a black student onto a cover photo for the 2001 to 2002 application booklet. And the Photoshop job was bad. Like, it was pretty easily recognizable that a current student was photographed, was not photographed, and instead photoshopped onto this image where, you know, he just wasn't anywhere near Camp Randall on that day. The sun wasn't shining in the right direction in his photo versus the, the photo around him. It was very obvious. And it's been 22 years since that happened, like 22 years to this day. You know, that's that incident is still in like our our dialogue. Like we reference it. WPR will reference it when they like are talking about our campus. And to this day, I hear students of color say that they feel that photographers and other UW communications people go out of their way to get pictures of them and their friends. On the flip side, we had that issue with our homecoming video last year, not having any students of color in it. So it's like, it's like this teeter-totter, you know? The images we are shown to promote the university, the photos that come with our admissions booklets, press releases, calendars, posters, we get the feeling that they're not accurate. They're not reflective of us. Students so rarely get to look around and see all of us, our peers, our friends, our neighbors, casual acquaintances until we're practically at Camp Randall about to receive our diploma. So our March edition will be titled The Identity Issue. We're planning on taking a step back to try to represent the student body openly and honestly, and interact with our surrounding city by highlighting the voices we might forget about. Can you give us a preview of some of the stories and topics that readers might see in our Action Project issue when it publishes this week? Definitely. So we're gonna talk about a lot of things. Identity is a pretty broad issue. We're going to talk about the relationship between food and identity, the struggles that Indigenous students face, the history of race and racism in UW athletics. That's going to be a story I'm excited about. Uh, the open mic night scene on campus, how to find yourself in college. One writer revisited the SSM health midwifery program that was nearly canceled last year. And another student reported on the return of Pride Prom to campus. You know, it's definitely going to be a very diverse issue, one of the most diverse ranges of topics I've ever had. Shifting to some general updates about the Cardinal, we're celebrating a pretty big milestone this weekend. Could you share some information about that? So we're coming out with our identity issue on Thursday. That's going to be the 31st. And pretty much right after that, we're going to celebrate our 130th anniversary. Literally four days later, April 4th, the, f the day we first printed, 130 years ago. We're going to have an anniversary issue that we'll be you'll be able to pick up around campus. Um, we'll, we'll probably have it at College Library next to our Action Project, as well as at the Unions and probably the bookstore. So you'll be able to get it. It's not just going to be in the hands of our alumni. Um, but yeah, we're, we have a whole lot of history to celebrate, and we're definitely going to do it right. We still have a month or so left of this semester and a lot of news to cover still at the Cardinal. Are there any major stories that readers should expect to see from us before this semester is over? Definitely. Um, I know we have a couple of investigative projects in the works that we might be able to wrap up by the end of the school year. If not, you'll be able to keep an eye out for those over the summer. Um, we're definitely going to continue to cover the Chancellor's search. In fact, we have a story about what our search committee looks like in our identity issue. So. Keep your eyes open. Even after graduation, we won't be done quite yet. Is there any other news you'd like to share about the Cardinal and what we've been up to? So the Cardinal definitely took home some awards from the 2021 year. We had, oh, we're, we're in the runnings for quite a few awards at the Milwaukee Press Club. I believe we took first for 
two or three uh, awards with the Wisconsin Newspaper Association, All, although those are a little unofficial yet. We haven't quite announced what awards we've received, but yeah, we take, took a sweeping, just sweeping win in the, in the investigative category. All three finalists are from the Cardinals, so definitely worth catching up on those stories when we do find out which one took home first place. Keep an eye on our socials because we'll be definitely reposting our award-winning stories. One more question for you as we wrap up. I feel like this has been a really great semester of getting back in our newsroom and getting together with our entire staff after operating virtually for so long. Have there been any memories that you've made um, throughout this school year that you'd like to share with everyone? Definitely. You know, this has just been a big year for being back in the office. I could not tell you maybe the the, the dozens of just like small little interactions I've had in the office that I just We'll really treasure for forever, um, but definitely we will keep making memories. We have our softball game with the Badger Herald coming up. That will be another slew of memories to take. Then that's that's really all I got to say. I, it's just been a great year for us, and it's one that will definitely stay with me for a long time. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Addison. Thank you for having me, Hope. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Our action project will be published in print and online this Thursday. Look out for episodes featuring action project stories from our news podcast, The Student Dive. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. On today's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg gets to know the first avian babies to come to the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center this year, owlets. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about baby great horned owls and their parents, because guess what? Our first baby of the year officially arrived here in the month of March, and it was a baby great horned owl. And we always take bets a little bit as staff to see what our first baby is going to be, what species, and generally great horned owls are the first for us. And they are hatching everywhere around Madison and some of them quite big already, which is pretty amazing. So I thought it'd be fun to talk about the uh, site selection of our nests for great horned owls and then how long it takes until those babies hatch and what do the parents do during that time period. It's a really fun thing. So we have great horned owls that will generally nest and pair quite early. It's generally suggested that the male will hold a territory, and you'll listen and hear them hooting to each other in their courtship sounds, uh, until they decide to pick a nest location, which generally is actually not their own nest that they've built. They typically use a nest of another bird species, so sometimes it can be a red-tailed hawk's old nest or even squirrel drays if they're really feeling desperate. So the female can lay her eggs, generally it could be anywhere between January and May, so it's a pretty wide 
wide time frame, but most of our baby owls will say are going to be probably incubated or brooded on by the parent in about February. So the female will actually brood on top of her eggs immediately after the first egg is laid, and it's only the female. There is no incubation done by the male parent, and it takes about 30 to 37 days on average to incubate those eggs until they hatch. And it's really cool because the the female will just sit on the nest throughout the entire time and really depend on the male to deliver that food. And a lot of times it's going to be throughout the night, right? Because uh, it's shortly after dark when owls are going to be most active. So when I mean brooded on, it means that she will lay on top of her eggs in the nest to keep those eggs really warm. And sometimes the outside temperature can actually affect the success of those eggs. They Believe it or not, it has been recorded that great horned owls Owls can still successfully incubate eggs even if outside temperatures are below negative 33 degrees Celsius. That's a pretty cold temperature. And then once they hatch, uh, then we're going to have these little <laughs> altricial, meaning that they need parental input, naked and eyes closed little birds. They're white little fluffies. They're very small. They're just absolutely cute. And they don't even open their eyes until about a week and a half after they're starting to develop. However, they do grow very, very fast. So it's amazing how much they're going to be eating. And they gain an average of about 30 plus grams every day. Um, and they're just growing incredibly, mostly their uh, their legs, so their femur, and then also their culmen, which is up near the beak. Those are the two things that grow the most quickly in the first three weeks of their lifetime. And then they begin replacing their feathers. So it turns from the white plumage, um, and it's bright white, to going more of a grayish color, kind of sometimes a little bit more buff. Um, and it takes them three weeks until you see their little ear tufts because great horned owls, as they are named adequately, is that they have little horns on top of their head. And it's really, really cute. They don't start to get any of their main flight feathers um, until about eight days. And that means that they just start to rupture out of their sheaths right where the feather follicles are. And by about two weeks old, it's maybe halfway in. So it takes them a little bit longer and, you know, fully grown, probably taking about about 26 weeks for those ear tufts to be like adult-like. So a uh, long way to go if you think about 26 weeks, right? Because there's four weeks or so in a month. So you got a couple couple months there for them to start looking more like adults. They start raising their heads up from the nest at three days old and they start snapping their bill at you as a, as a kind of a sound or a warning if you were to get close. Uh, it takes them about six days to be able to do that. And they will also cast their first pellets by seven days old, so one week. And that means that they're regurgitating Regurgitating the extra uh, fur and bones and other things that aren't digested in an owl. So we see owl pellets all the time at the Wildlife Center, and it's actually a great sign to show that their gut is moving and that they are digesting properly. And they can hear the adults, so they will definitely call back and forth to each other. If you've ever had an owl nest in your backyard, you can hear them do their little the adult hoots and then the tiny little kind of sounds, which is really adorable. Food calling, uh, sometimes it's some sort of like hiss <laughs> and the swaying from side to side if you've ever seen them try to defend if it's something else that's not the parent that flies by like a crow and they'll raise their wings up also in a defensive posture and it's really cute because they're so ugly <laughs> at the young age uh, until they eventually become adults and obviously it looks a little bit different but they really aren't going to become curious to start coming out of the nest or think about grasping objects and walking around until about 21 days old um, and it does take uh, quite a bit of time until they're 
they're going to start branching out of the nest or departing. It, it takes them six to seven weeks to actually kind of go onto the nearby branches. And then they can start doing some short flights because their feathers will be more fully in. Probably, you know, nine to ten weeks later, they're going to be moving away from the nest a little bit further and sometimes even down to the ground, which is something you shouldn't always be alarmed of during the baby season because that is the natural part of their development. Parents will still drop food to them from above and they can climb trees quite well if they're really meaning to. They can kind of grab on and make their way up some low low branches. So, you know, they're going to be with their parents for a pretty long time into late summer, early fall um, until they either migrate or don't, although they're considered semi-partial migrants here. So they will definitely stick around and others will leave to go a little further south. But, you know, they're still begging for food from their parents into like October. So after they leave the nest, it's about four or five months later until they're really independent from uh, their parents. And then they are off and they are hopefully able to hunt. They're learning from their parents or other um, owls in the nearby area. But otherwise, they will then, you know, continue on uh, living their lives until then they themselves either come back to their natal area or find a new home range where they will pair up with other owls and the cycle begins again. So we are right in the middle of that here in Wisconsin and excited to be seeing our first babies and getting them back to the care of their parents if they fall out of their nests, which is very common. Uh, You should always call a rehabilitator if you think that the owl on the ground for some reason has an injury. Best if, you know, if you definitely see an injury, then for sure they should be contacted. If they look otherwise healthy and are clacking at you and just kind of wobbling back and forth, that's really natural. So keep an eye out for the parents. Uh, Watch really carefully over a 24-hour period. And if you hear or see them, and remember that's going to be mostly at night for these owls, then you can pretty safely say that that owl is going to be okay. If they ever start looking tired or lethargic or they don't move away from you and don't seem energetic at all if you approach, that might be a sign of an orphaned owl or one that has lost its parents in some form or fashion after leaving the nest. So things to be on the lookout for at this time of year. If you have any questions about owls or maybe they're sick, they're injured, you're not sure what to do, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On this week's Radio Astronomy, host Melissa Morris takes a trip back in time with the James Webb Space Telescope to peer back at the beginnings of our universe. Plus, stay tuned until the end for an important update on UW-Madison's astronomy department. Our universe has existed for roughly, oh, 13.8 billion years, give or take a few. So what do astronomers know about its history? Welcome to Radio Astronomy, folks. My name is Melissa Morris, and today we're going to talk about how astronomers can learn about the early years of our universe and what we know about them. To start off, let's talk about how an astronomer even knows anything. Light. The light we see from the distant corners of our universe has informed astronomers for centuries about what is going on in the cosmos. 
In order to understand what we observe, it's important to understand one of the most fundamental properties of light. It has a finite travel speed. It can travel no faster than 670 million miles per hour, and nothing else in the universe can travel faster than that. This has a lot of important implications for many of the things that we observe. For example, our sun is roughly 93 million miles away from us here on Earth. Therefore, the light we see from it takes about eight and a half minutes to travel to us. On Earth, we are observing the sun as it was eight and a half minutes ago. That's almost the length of a SpongeBob episode. But what does this mean for objects that are much further away? The nearest star to our sun is 25 trillion miles away, so light coming from that star takes roughly four years to travel to us here on Earth. Therefore, we say that it is four light years away. Objects in our own galaxy can be thousands of light years away from us, and if we look at the Milky Way as a whole, it takes roughly 100,000 years for light to travel from one end of the disk all the way to the other. For reference, 100,000 years ago, the Earth was still deep in the throes of the Ice Age. However, 100,000 years isn't too long when you're considering cosmological time scales. It's less than a fraction of the total lifetime of the universe. So, how far away are things that are outside of our galaxy? You see, this is where things get really interesting. It turns out, astronomers can see galaxies that are so far away, the light we see emitted from them was emitted close to the beginning of the universe. By studying these distant galaxies, astronomers can learn a great deal about the history of the universe and why things today look the way they do. However, galaxies aren't the only thing astronomers see in the distant universe. Back in the 60s, a pair of astronomers built a really cool telescope that would observe light emitted by objects at fairly long wavelengths, or microwaves. However, when they began using it, they measured a constant hum everywhere they looked in the sky. This seemed really odd to them, given that this state-of-the-art telescope should be sensitive enough not to pick up this kind of noise. They did everything they could to get rid of this, even going as far as shooing away a group of pigeons that had made their home on the telescope. However, they still detected this strange hum everywhere they looked. Around the same time, theorists predicted that, according to the Big Bang Theory, astronomers should be able to observe radiation that was emitted only 380,000 years after the Big Bang, when the universe went from being up of a very hot, opaque plasma to being cooler and transparent. Eventually, the two astronomers discovered that this must be what they were observing with their telescope. This phenomena was then named the Cosmic Microwave Background, which shows us radiation of some of the very earliest stages of the universe. To this day, astronomers are still studying the cosmic microwave background and using it to learn about the universe. It can teach us a great deal about the shape of the universe, what was happening right after the Big Bang, and why the universe looks the way it does. With all of this information, astronomers are able to observe large swaths of the universe's history by simply looking at things that are incredibly far away. 
However, there are still entire stages of the universe's history that haven't been observed. You see, while we can observe distant galaxies, we are currently limited by the capabilities of current telescopes in how far back we can really look. Observing light that was emitted by an object billions and billions of light years away is no small feat after all. Many of the most distant galaxies that we've observed to date show up as no more than a few pixels in an image with even the most advanced telescope. This is due to many different factors, from Earth's atmosphere smearing the light from these distant objects to current space telescopes like Hubble not being large enough to be able to resolve these very tiny objects. However, with the James Webb Space Telescope finally being launched and being mere months away from getting scientific data, astronomers are close to being able to observe some of the farthest and most distant corners of the universe, back to a time when the universe was barely one billion years old. This is a time period known as the Epic of Reionization, when our universe was undergoing some drastic changes that we can still observe the effects of today. However, that is a subject for another radio astronomy. I hope you all enjoyed learning about the history of the universe with me and that you're as excited about the James Webb Space Telescope as I am. Before we end, I have some exciting news. We will be reopening Washburn Observatory on UW's campus. Join me and some other members of UW's astronomy department there next Wednesday, April 6th, so you can use this amazing 145-year-old telescope to glance out at the universe. That's all for Radio Astronomy, folks. My name is Melissa Morris, and I'm wishing you a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Sophie Lee. Your reporter tonight was Heron Splinter, and a warm welcome to our newest reporter, Catherine Garvins. Your weather reporter this evening was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to featured contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at The Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Weggie Howe produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT. Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Up next is the Spanish language news and Nuestro Patio. Have a great night.